All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Redemption Church um, this morning. My name is Reggie, and uh, I'm one of the um, pastors, one of the elders here uh, at Redemption Church. And this morning, we're continuing going through the book of Acts. Uh, for the better part of 2018, we'll be in the book of Acts, and right now we're going through a series that we're calling uh, Church on the Move, as we look at uh, the gospel moving out from Jerusalem uh, in the very beginning of the early church, uh, as it's recorded in the book of Acts. Um, so in just a few minutes, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9. Uh, it's a pretty famous story in Scripture, and so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but it wasn't too much more than a decade ago um, that myself and a few other people, uh, we were talking and planning and thinking about what it would look like to plant a church in downtown Augusta, uh, to plant a church in downtown Augusta for downtown Augusta. And so I was in seminary at the time. And uh, there was another guy named Jeremy Carr, and if you guys have been around, any of you have been around uh, Redemption for a while, you know Jeremy. Jeremy was on staff here and a part of Redemption Church for a very long time, and he moved away a couple of years ago. Um, but Jeremy and I would meet together in the early stages when we were first thinking about what it would look like to plant a church in downtown Augusta. And when we would meet together, we would simply just spend some time praying. And we met together for about a year uh, before we did anything, and all we did was pray. And I remember during that time, we were praying for a variety of things. Uh, but during that time that we were praying, one of the things that we decided to do was write down some names of people who were a part of the downtown community, because we wanted to be a church in downtown for downtown, that we were in relationships with, and just simply pray for those people. Uh, pray that they would come to faith. We were praying that God would intervene in their lives to give, the, to give them the one thing uh, that we thought they needed more than anything else, and that was a relationship with Christ. We were praying for God to interrupt their lives with the good news of the gospel. First person's name that we ever wrote down was a guy named Jason Barron. Uh, some of you may know Jason Barron. Uh, I texted him on Friday and asked him if I could share a little bit about this. But um, Jason was pretty famous in the downtown community. Uh, that was a long time ago. His nickname was Freak Boy. Uh, I'm sure he would not appreciate that name uh, these days. Um, but Jason was a part of this church for a long time and came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Redemption Church. We were called the Well then. And through the influence of uh, certain believers who were a part of the church, he came to faith in Christ. And God answered the very prayer that we had been praying. The very first person we ever prayed to come to faith through the ministry of this church, came to faith. And God did the very thing that we were praying for. God interrupted his life with the good news of the gospel and completely turned Jason's life around. Jason moved away a few years ago with his wife. She was continuing graduate studies. Um, and so they moved away, and they live in, in Greenville now. Um, but God did the very thing that we asked God to do, to interrupt his life with the truth of who Jesus was. If you turn to Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at God interrupting the life and the journey of someone else. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at the first 21 verses to begin with this morning. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 21, it's a pretty famous story. It's the story of Paul 
Saul, as he's known here, on the road to Damascus. And so I'm going to read the first 21 verses for us. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Pray with me. Holy Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible story, this incredible reminder of how at any moment in time, God, you can intervene and change everything. And Holy Father, as the next, uh, as we spend a little bit of time together over the next few minutes talking about Acts chapter 9, some other things in Scripture, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds speaking your truth to us drawing us to yourself. I pray like Saul on the road to Damascus, that we were in, would encounter Jesus in this place and that we would be changed because of it. God, I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. God, I realize that my words are of little importance and apart from Jesus, I am even unworthy to proclaim your good word. But God, even now, let us hear from you. Let us meet with Jesus. May Jesus be lifted high. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The majority of Acts 9 tells the story of Saul, who comes to be known as Paul, and what happens to him during this time where he's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. And 
Um, just so you know, I'll probably use Saul and Paul interchangeably this morning, but I'm talking about the same person. But in Acts 9, we have this story about Jesus interrupting the life of Saul in a pretty dramatic way. At the end of Acts chapter 9, which we haven't read yet, but we will in just a little bit, we see Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit through his disciples interrupting the power of sickness and death. Sickness and death are inevitabilities of life that none of us can overcome through our own power. And so if we look at Acts chapter 9, sort of from a bird's eye point of view, from really high looking down, this chapter is about Jesus showing up and changing things. It's about Jesus doing what Jesus does, turning things around. This chapter is a reminder that in a moment, God can turn the biggest adversaries to the gospel into the biggest advocates for Jesus. It's a reminder that obstacles that seem insurmountable to us in our own human power, those obstacles hold no power and no sway over the omnipotent Lord of the universe. The reality of Acts 9 is that Jesus can, and Jesus still does, turn things around. And, and, and so why is it important for us to grasp this truth, this overarching truth of Acts chapter 9, that Jesus still turns things around? And here's why I think it's important. It's human nature for us to assume that we know how things are going to play out. It's human nature for us to assume that we've got it figured out and that we know how the story will end and that we can put the pieces in place to make happen what we want to happen. But if you're pessimistic and cynical like me, you think the story is always going to end badly. But part of the message of the book of Acts, part of the message of Acts chapter 9, part of the message of Scripture is that we don't really know how the story is going to go once Jesus gets involved. We know the ultimate reality that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But between now and then, Jesus still shows up and Jesus still turns things around. Because Jesus is not dead, Jesus is not distant, Jesus is not disinterested, nor silent, nor weak. And despite our pessimism or optimism or realism or whatever term we use to, to, to describe how we are as it relates to how things are going to play out, whatever we're calling it, we simply don't know. Jesus is still full of surprises for his people and his church and our world. And so from Acts chapter 9 this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to take a look at three instances in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus shows up and turns some things around. And then I'll close with three very specific truths that I think we should take away from what we see in Acts chapter 9. The first example of Jesus turning things around is found with Saul. It's what I just read. We have the majority of that story in verses 1 through 21. Saul, who is soon to be known as Paul. If you're not familiar with the background of Saul, uh, there's a first thing, there are a few things you should know. This is not the first time we've encountered Saul in the book of Acts. Acts uh, Saul showed up earlier in the book of Acts. He was introduced whenever Stephen was being um, stoned to death, consenting to the violence of Stephen's death. He goes on to breathe threats against believers in Jerusalem so that these early uh, believers are scattered around Israel. They're scattered around to different nations and to different cities. 
all around the place because Saul and those who were with Saul were going to their homes, dragging them out, men and women and children, and persecuting them. And so they're on the move because of the persecution of Saul and those group of people who are with Saul. Then we get to Acts chapter 9, and what we see here is that Saul has gone to the high priest and acquired letters that he can take to the synagogues in Damascus in order to turn over to the leaders there so that those early Jewish believers who fled from Saul's persecution can be brought back and face whatever it is Paul wants them or Saul wants them to face. There was a pretty big Jewish community in Damascus, about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. And so Saul was on his way to get those that had scattered from Jerusalem to Damascus and bring them back. Later on in the New Testament, we learn a little bit more about Saul. Paul, when he's writing uh, later on in Scripture in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul tells us that he felt about himself that he, better than anyone else, could uphold the law of God. We also know that Saul had studied in Jerusalem. In Acts 22, we find out that Saul studied under a guy named Gamaliel, who was uh, part of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee in Jerusalem. Uh, He was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who was integral to the very beginning of this whole thing of Pharisaism, or the very beginning of this uh, group of people being formed and, and, and gathering power that we know as the Pharisees. For Saul, his whole life was about an active propagation of what he thought was the proper way to live life, the pharisaical way, following the rules, living by the code, doing the things, living according to their understanding of Scripture. The whole pharisaical system was about keeping the law and being sure that you don't even come close to breaking it. And so what that means is it relates to Acts chapter 7 and the death of Stephen. And what that, relate, what that means is it relates to Acts chapter 9 is that when Saul was a part of Stephen's death, Saul was trying to rid what he believed was true religion of any influences that might threaten it. And when Saul is on the way to Damascus, Saul was doing everything in his power to rid Judaism of anything that could possibly corrupt it, namely the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Saul is on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, Saul meets Jesus face to face. And everything starts to turn around. You know that feeling when everything gets turned around, when everything gets turned upside down? That's what happens to Saul. I remember my first truck, I'll tell you this story really quickly, was a 1978 Chevy Love. It was a horribly, horrible and horribly unsafe little truck. It cost me like $500 at an auction, and I don't even know why my parents let me do it, but they did. And so I was driving down Washington Road one morning, and it was raining, 
and my dad was riding with me. It might have been the first time my dad had ever even ridden with me in this truck. And um, the truck didn't have analog brakes. It's raining. I'm going down Washington Road, taking him to work because uh, his truck is in the shop, right in front of the Augusta National. And all of a sudden, somebody in front of me steps on the brakes, slams on the brakes. And so I slam on the brakes just all the way down to the floor. And um, the truck spins around on Washington Road so that we're facing the opposite direction of where we're coming. But it stayed in the lane that I was in. So I don't even know how that's possible, but it just spun around backwards. And I remember looking over at my dad, and like his jaw was on the floor. And he never rode with me again after that, quite frankly. But I can't really blame him. Everything was turned around. And in essence, Saul has a collision with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything begins to turn around. Saul is literally knocked off his feet by this collision. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul had spent his whole life constructing what it meant to follow after God. His whole life was built around making sure that he was following after God. He had spent his whole life worshiping a God that had been developed from this code rather than worshiping the Lord of the universe that the scriptures revealed. Saul took the scriptures and created a God that didn't exist. And so when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had to ask the question, who are you? Because he didn't know. He had created in his mind a strong God who would be zealous for the old ways of doing things. Just like Saul was zealous for propagating a certain way of life and a certain way of worship and a certain way of living out this religious life. That's the God that Saul was worshiping. And on this road, he bumps into the real Jesus. And so he says, who are you? That was an incredibly important question for Saul. It's the question of the hour for us. First John 3.20 says this, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Why is that important to this text? Guys, if our hearts and minds, if our system is creating the God we are worshiping, if the God we are worshiping is just a reflection of ourselves, then that God cannot be greater than our hearts. A real God, the Lord of the universe, is the God who bumps into our lives and tells us things we don't want to hear. If God were to only tell us things that we want to hear, then he's just a God that is an extension of ourselves and our own desires. And in fact, we need a God that will contradict the desires of our hearts We need a God that will knock us off our feet every now and then. Because when God contradicts our heart's desires, he's not a God that we've created. He's a God that's real. And a God that's pointing us to truth and reality. Church, we need to ask ourselves about what do our hearts need to be contradicted and challenged? Where does God need to speak into our lives And show us who he really is. Church, we need to ask the question, who are you, Lord? Do I have it right? 
or have I missed something? Who are you? As we move on through the story, Paul gets taken to Damascus. The people that are with him take him into Damascus. And he's sitting in Damascus. He's blind. He can't see. He's not eating. He's devoid of strength. And there's nothing he can do but sit and think in the darkness. He's not eating, not doing anything, can't see. All he can do is sit and think and reflect in the darkness. And I I don't really know what Paul is doing while he's sitting and thinking in the darkness. Other parts of Scripture seem to clue us in a little bit about what's going on. Galatians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, Romans chapter 7, Acts 26, they all fill us in a little bit on a few more things about what's happening while Paul is in darkness. But I don't think it's a far stretch to believe that Paul is sitting in darkness and that God put him in that darkness, blind and weak, so that Paul could contemplate who Jesus is and what that now meant about who he was. He would have had to deal with things like this. Deuteronomy 21-23 says that any man hanged on a tree for death because of sin is cursed. How could Jesus hang on a tree and not be cursed, right? How could Jewish believers be following a Messiah that was hung on a tree because anybody that's hung on a tree is cursed? Well, that only makes sense if Jesus died for somebody else's sin rather than his own. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3. And Jesus was vindicated on the cross by being raised from the dead. And Saul knows that Jesus was raised from the dead because Saul met him on the road to Damascus. And so all of a sudden, Paul has to deal with the fact that this Jesus who was cursed on a tree has been vindicated and is alive. And that means he's not cursed. And that would have been horrifying to Saul because he would have been faced with the reality That maybe, just maybe, Jesus died for his sin. And Paul was too good and too proud for anybody to have to die for him. Paul would have had to deal with this at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. The Messiah that's coming to rescue God's people is strong and powerful. And at the end, he's a suffering servant who dies for his people. And all of a sudden, Paul is in the darkness, and I'm pretty sure things like this are starting to click for him. Maybe Jesus is that suffering servant that Isaiah talks about, because Paul would have known that as well as anybody, what Isaiah was talking about. Maybe that starts to make sense to Paul. Paul would have had to deal with this, that for hundreds of years, God's people had made animal sacrifices to atone for their own sins. But if it's true that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for Paul's sin, for Saul's sin, and Saul met him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus hung on that tree as a sacrifice, then all those sacrifices that had been made over the years, they were pointing to Jesus. right? And all these things, I believe, are starting to click for Saul in his mind when he's in darkness. In Acts 26, when the story is recounted with a couple of different details, Paul adds this to the story, that when God spoke to him, this is Acts 26, 14, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
A goat is a sharp stick that's used with with livestock, with sheep. If you're a shepherd and you need a sheep to go in a certain direction, you stick them because you can't talk to them. You've got to make them go in a different direction, right? You can't reason with them. You can't have a conversation with them. And so Saul, in his darkness, would have had to consider, how have I been kicking against the goads? Maybe it was when he heard Stephen preach about Jesus being the fulfillment of everything God promised. Maybe it was when Saul drugged these men and women from their homes and he saw them only proclaim the gospel even more despite their persecution. Maybe it was something else entirely, but Saul would have had to have been reflecting on it in the darkness. And so he's sitting there in the darkness, rethinking everything he ever knew about God and the Scriptures and Jesus and the Messiah and himself. I think some of us can relate to that, right? Have you ever found yourself in the darkness having to rethink everything you thought you knew about God and life and yourself? Have you been there in the darkness? The darkness is not a pleasant place to be at all. But for Paul, everything gets turned around in the darkness. His code becomes unraveled. It all falls apart because Jesus is in the business of turning things around. If you want to read more about Paul's code unraveling, read Romans chapter 7. More than one scholar believes Romans 7 paints a fuller picture of what it means for Paul to deal with these things in that darkness. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to say I believe God put Saul in that darkness so that everything else could come into perspective, so that Paul could reorder all he knew about the Scriptures. And we know that that happened because in verse 20, Paul came out of the darkness proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. So in those days of darkness, Paul is reflecting, he's rethinking, and whatever God is doing, he's completely turning Saul around to the point that he walks out of that darkness going, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has ever promised. Jesus is what I've been waiting on, and I've missed it, but now I get it. We move on through this chapter and just look at a couple of more verses. There are a couple more examples of Jesus turning things around. I will read verses 32 through 43 just quickly here. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. They turned to the Lord. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas, had, that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. He opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. 
And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believe in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. In these short few verses at the end of Acts chapter 9, we have the story of Peter healing both a paralyzed person and raising someone else, a, a woman from the dead. And both of these things are used by God for the gospel to advance. That's what the scriptures say there. And when God turns things around, when God interrupts, when we have a collision with God, the ultimate purpose is so that the gospel will advance. Because when God saves us, God doesn't just save us for us to have this personal relationship with Christ that doesn't lead to anything else. When God turns us around, when God intercedes in our lives, the gospel advances because God saves us that we might be disciples who make disciples. Sickness and death, these are both terrible effects of the fall, and we see them here in Acts chapter 9. There are the realities of living in a sinful and a fallen world. And these are things that we cannot overcome in our own power. But with his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated our greatest enemies for all time. Satan, sin, death, sickness, those are no longer the ultimate realities of life. We still see those things every day. We live in this now but not yet tension where we know that Jesus has secured the victory. We know that Jesus has won. But we still sin, we still get sick, we still die. But in events like we see at the end of Acts chapter 9, where sickness is overcome and death is turned back, we are able to glimpse the reality of a new heaven and a new earth that is coming one day where these things will cease to exist. Because Jesus still turns things around. And all that's fallen about our world, Jesus will turn around. Jesus has already won the victory, and one day we'll see the ultimate reality of that victory. I'm going to move towards the close by just contemplating three valuable truths. Um, three things I think we should take away from this passage. The interesting thing about the book of Acts is it's a lot of stories. Uh, it's a lot of we see things happening. It's a lot of narrative. And so there's a lot for us to grasp here, but we want to make sure that we grasp what's important. And so I'm just going to highlight three things. Number one, the gospel is advanced by ordinary Christians who grasp the full ramifications of the gospel. The gospel is advanced by ordinary Christians who grasp the full ramifications of the gospel. Paul, who gets turned around in Acts chapter 9, goes on to become the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, has had more impact on global Christianity than probably anybody else ever will, wrote more of the New Testament. But the story of Acts chapter 9 does not hinge on Paul. Acts chapter 9 hinges on a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Jesus tells Ananias, Go to Paul. And Ananias says, uh, Jesus, uh, Saul has a warrant for my arrest. It, I've heard of this guy. 
he's caused a lot of trouble. Are you sure you want me to go to him? Because I kind of feel like it's going to go badly for me, right? That's what Ananias is saying. And Jesus responds to Ananias and says, um, hey, I've got a plan for Paul. Go. And so Ananias does. But I don't think he goes just because Jesus told him to. I really don't. That doesn't make sense. I think it's more than that. Ananias goes, and I think part of the reason he goes is he understands that the gospel is for everyone because he understood that the gospel is for him. He he goes because I think he understands that if it's true that Jesus is the Messiah who dies for his people, then Jesus died for people like Saul too. And so this whole story hinges on whether Ananias is going to go and do what he's asked to do. And because I believe Ananias got the full ramifications of the gospel, Ananias went and extended the hand of fellowship to somebody that had literally taken the life of other believers. Acts 9, 17 through 19, it reads this way. So Ananias departed and entered the house And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The whole story hinges on Ananias. Now obviously, if Ananias didn't go, Jesus could have sent someone else. But Ananias did go. He was obedient. He did get the full ramifications of the gospel. And so church, perhaps what we need to see this morning is this. We're not all going to be Paul. But we all can be Ananias. We can be changed by the truth of the gospel so that we understand our need for it in order that we might freely offer it to others along with the embrace of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ. Let's be changed by the gospel. Let's extend it where Jesus directs us to because we understand it. Number two, when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to a family. Verse four says this, and falling to the ground, Saul, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is deeply rich, and I think we could probably preach a whole sermon just on this. Well, we definitely could. But the ultimate truth of what Jesus is saying here is that all believers are uniquely connected to Jesus. And so as Saul is persecuting believers, he's persecuting Jesus directly. And so we are uniquely connected to Jesus, which means we are uniquely connected to one another. Not just the believers in this room but also the believers at other churches this morning. Not just the believers who share our theology, but also the believers who don't. Not just the believers who share our race and culture, but also the believers who don't. As a quick point of application, let me just say this. Right now, even in our own city, There are African-American and Asian and Hispanic and African and Middle Eastern believers 
who daily fear the ever-present realities of living in an unjust world where the systems of our world are stacked against those believers. Those believers are our brothers and sisters. And so we dare not look the other way and not take their concerns to heart. There's no place for believers to minimize the sorrow and fear and present realities of other believers simply because their skin color or culture might be different. That's one point of application, and it is so incredibly important in our current cultural and political environment. And you might tell me you're crossing the line from the gospel to politics. I'm not. I'm not. I'm simply telling you, Jesus says we're connected to other believers. And so when we fail to live like we're connected to other believers, it's nothing short of sin. Number three, Jesus still turns people and things and situations around. There is a certain pride in the prediction of human beings based on human calculations and human knowledge and human factors that is not good. When we think we have it all figured out, that pride is sinful. The Lord of the universe has proven over and over again that he can and he will turn things around in an instant. Let us not reckon with our own pride and arrogance and human wisdom. Rather, let us reckon with the omnipotent Lord of the universe. Because the point of the book of Acts, the point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is in charge of this world. Jesus still butts in. And Jesus still changes things. And so I'm not calling us to a foolish sense of optimism where we just blindly sit back believing that everything is going to be okay. But I am calling you to an open-ended expectancy that Jesus can show up. Jesus can turn things around and that Jesus will show up and Jesus will turn things around. And that's why that's why we're so passionate about the gospel. That's why we're so passionate about the gospel being proclaimed. That's why we pray on a regular basis that doors to the gospel would be open even in our own city. So that through our prayers, through the work of God's people on earth, Jesus will show up and Jesus will change hearts and lives and Jesus will change our city because that's what he does. We're going to enter into a time of response. During our time of response here at Redemption, uh, sort of a lot goes on at the same time. The band's going to come back up here in just a second. And they're going to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship through singing. And so let me extend that opportunity to you. We're also going to have the opportunity to sit right where you are, uh, pray, reflect, um, deal with whatever it is that God is dealing with you this morning in your hearts and minds. We have an opportunity to give, a, a way to continue to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can do that. We also have an opportunity to worship through taking communion. Uh, we take communion on a regular basis at Redemption, um, and the reason we do that is because we're remembering what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming that we believe it. And so if you come this morning to take communion, you're coming with the understanding that you are remembering Christ's work on our behalf, and that we are proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it is true. 
So if you'd like to take communion this morning, I would invite you to come down these uh, sort of angled aisles over here. Um, take uh, the bread, tear it off, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Uh, I'm going to pray for us to continue on through our time uh, of response. Holy Father, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that you still show up, that you still turn things around, and that that's what you're about. God, I pray that we would be a people that live with the expectancy that you will show up, that you will turn things around, that you will bring people to faith, that you will provide for your people. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on our behalf. And thank you that this morning we can simply talk about it, remember it, worship because of it, and meet with you in this place and be changed because Jesus is lifted high and Jesus is glorified here. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Slain, then 
bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost his grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in